All right. Um, good evening. Thanks for coming. I'm uh, a, a bit ill. I didn't want to cancel, but if I go on a coughing jag, I apologize. <clears throat> I've got whatever it is that's been laying everyone low. <clears throat> and I'll pause for many drinks. Um, this evening, we're, I want to cover um, two Islamic philosophers, Al-Ghazali and Averroes. I, I really I want to do an Islamic philosopher, and I couldn't narrow down whom to choose because it is such a, uh, an abundance of riches and because, it, generally speaking, we're totally ignorant of the history and, and greatness of the, of the Islamic Golden Age in particular. And so I thought what I would do rather than focus on a particular philosopher is use these two um, incredibly influential thinkers as a means to give us a broader introduction uh, to the Islamic Golden Age um, and the in continuing influence, in fact, the profound influence they have had on both Western philosophy um, and, uh, you know, the, the philosophy of the Islamic world um, since, you know, basically its inception. And it really is an extraordinary tale, so I hope you enjoy it, um, because it begins again with the Greeks. <laughs> oddly, oddly enough, everything begins with the Greeks. And so I, I've got a lot of names here on the timeline uh, that you're going to get rather quickly. Uh, but I just again, I wanted to familiarize you with some of the names and, and kind of go through the, the history here. We tend to begin the Greek philosophers with uh, Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, you know, the, the standard bunch. There's nothing particularly wrong with that, but we forget the pre-Socratics. <clears throat> who are important for a couple of reasons. Not the least of these is that the early Milesians, uh, Anaximander, Thales, uh, Democritus, well, he wasn't one of the Milesians, uh, Democritus, were, were flavors of materialists. And they argued that basically the world is run by natural laws and you study the world to understand what's going on, you don't really need the gods. And they tend to be either what we would call deists, which is they said, well, there might be a spirit or a god out there, but they don't influence anything anymore. Um, or they were just downright atheistic and said, no, you don't need that at all. What you need is the, to understand the natural world is you study the natural world. And this is you know, the, the notion that everything goes back to air, or everything goes back to water, or everything goes back to earth. Um, or the noumena, I believe that was Thales argument, uh, is, is the notion that there is this base unit of uh, physical reality that if you understand that clearly enough, all other explanations will follow. I mean, you may notice this. This is more or less one of the foundations of modern scientific thinking. It goes all the way back uh, to what is it, five, 600 to 500 BC. The next wave of philosophers in Greece there's Socrates, Hippocrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Now, none of these were materialists. In fact, they, they tend to argue against it. Uh, but they did use systematic applications of logic and argumentation and disputation to try to arrive at the truth. And they had you know, very different takes on what God amounted to, what the spirit was, the immortal soul, the nature of all this. In fact, some of the most complicated passages in Aristotle, excuse me, are his discussions of the nature of the soul and his sort of, he has, he has this concept, um, almost this concept, I guess, that there's a universal mind. And when we're thinking correctly, what we're really doing is rejoining the universal mind 
of which our mind is just sort of a, a sorry subset. And that when we die, what happens is we just, our, our intellect just kind of perfectly maps onto the intellect of the universe, and that's what immortality of the soul means. But it's, it's a very complex and confusing and much disputed section of Aristotle. Um, but they were not materialists. This is important to note. Uh, then you have Galen. You'll see why this is important. He, Ga Galen is uh, second century AD, um, 129 to 200 AD there. Uh, he's important because he is the medical figure par excellence for the next uh, 1,800 years, give or take. I mean, Galen is the man. In fact, there is a lot we could learn from Galen today. For instance, he said the first thing you have to do is study the patient. Then you see what you can do by changing behavior. That's the step one for curing, is to change the behavior of the patient. What they eat, how they sleep, what their exercise regime is, are they getting enough fresh air, are they getting sunshine? The second thing you do is, if the first does not work, then you can prescribe a treatment. But the less treatment, the better. And prescribing a treatment is always seen as a failure of understanding. Sometimes necessary, but definitely means that we failed to understand something correctly. And the last thing you do is any sort of invasive procedure. That is only in the last instance when everything else has failed to give results. I mean, there's a lot to learn in Galen, let me put it that way. Even, even the many years later, Galen can teach us. Um, and then, of course, in, in 570-632, you get uh, Muhammad and the rise of Islam. And one of the most extraordinary events in the history of the world, without doubt, is that in the nether regions of barren Arabia, a prophet is born. And it could not be more poor or more remote in that district. And he begins preaching some, you know, new ideas. And if in five, I don't know, say 600 AD, you walked over and said, you know what, there's this guy out in that desert over there, and they're going to conquer basically all of the known world here in about 70 years. People would have laughed at you. They were poor relatively backwards. No one would consider them civilized. They, ba they barely had writing. They had writing, but not a lot of it. Most people had never heard of them. And then in basically 150 years, they conquered all of the dominions that used to be the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire. I mean, just a huge swath, including, importantly for our lecture, the Iberian Peninsula of Spain. 750, they pretty much complete the conquest there. Now, I mean, I, scholars have often argued and still argue about how that could happen. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's it just one of these amazing events that in, in a very short period of time, civilization after civilization, massive, uh, huge landmass is conquered by what had previously been an unknown and certainly from a material standpoint or a civilization standpoint, unspectacular uh, group, but the power of Muhammad and Islam. <clears throat> 750 is where the philosophical story really picks up because this is when the Abbasids defeat the Umayyads. Umayyads uh, are the first caliphate after who really organized the Islamic empire. Um, but they are overthrown by the Abbasids who move the center of power to Baghdad. Not, originally not Baghdad, but they end up in Baghdad very quickly. 
And they actually build Baghdad, by the way. They didn't move to an existing city. They said, let's build a city here and make it our capital. And that's where Baghdad comes from. Although, of course, civilization had been in that region for time immemorial. But they founded Baghdad, built Baghdad, and that's you know, the historical arrival of that as a, as a chief city in civilization is the Abbasid Caliphate. And that takes place in you know, 750, and then it goes to 1250, which is a pretty good run, 500 years. And almost immediately, and no one is really clear why, they think, let's translate all the Greek works. Let's translate them all. Let's go. Let's do it. And so they start what's called the translation movement. And they spend huge, I mean, it's truly vast sums of money to translate all of the major mathematical, engineering, um, philosophical, uh, medical uh, works that they could get their hands on from Greek into Arabic. If that had not happened, almost certainly much of the Greek texts and, and that we have today would have been lost or they would have been a much longer time resurfacing. Because some of them, well not some of them, many of them only exist now in the Arabic translations. That's how they were passed along through the generations. So for hundreds of years, they, it, was, it was the Arabic scholars who was keeping the Greek tradition alive. Uh, to give you an idea of how immense an undertaking this was, the estimates are that, uh, or the estimates, they have the records of it, but it's hard to translate. But a, but a good translator would make about twenty to $30,000 a month in, in, in roughly equivalent of modern money. Um, so you're talking something on, on the two hundred to $300,000 a year. And it took a team of translators to work on each text. Often they were, they were, they were groups. And so you'd have five or six translators working on a single text. So you're looking at you know, a million to two million dollars of investment to get one of these texts delivered in Arabic. And this, this project went on for almost two centuries. It wasn't, it wasn't a flash in the pan. One caliph said, oh, let's do this. Uh, it was an ongoing uh, and really intellectually intense uh, undertaking because one, many of them didn't, I mean, the, Arab, the Arabs didn't have ancient Greek. So they had to go out and get scholars who still had the Greek. And this wasn't coming from the Byzantine world, by the way, because the Arabs and the Byzantines did not get along. But many Christian scholars were still around, particularly in Syria. So a lot of the works got translated from ancient Greek into Syriac, and then from Syriac into Arabic, because Arabic and Syriac, a lot of Arabs spoke Syriac, but, you know, so making all these bridges. But this was a huge, if they did nothing else, the Abbasid Caliphate would be famous, for the fact that they had invested this huge intellectual resource uh, and money and time into bringing all the classics, or many of the classics, into Arabic and keeping, the, keeping those texts alive. So what happens, of course, as they do this, is they, the translators themselves um, and then philosophers associated with the translation begin to be influenced by the ideas that come from the Greeks. For whatever reason, the Greeks always seem to influence people. Wherever they go, these texts seem to be hugely influential. Um, and so the early ones are uh, Al-Farabi and, and uh, Avicenna are two of the most famous associated with this movement. Um, and we'll, we'll hear about them. But then I want to get to uh, our first philosopher tonight is Al-Ghazali. Um, 
uh, whew, it's hard to narrow down. Al-Ghazali wrote everything and did everything. I think that's the quick summary of it. Uh, he was a, a legal theorist, one of the most important Sunni legal theorists in, in, in Islamic history, still quoted and taught in, in um, schools in the Sunni world today. Uh, he was a significant thinker on everything philosophical. He was one of the most influential um, Sufi thinkers and certainly played a major if not the most important role in giving the philosophical foundations for Sufism uh, in the Islamic world. He is certainly one, if not the most important philosopher on that front. Uh, in fact, for instance, if, if you listen to music from this part of the world, there are bands called Ghazali, you know, and, and this kind of thing. He's constantly referenced because he was sort of the Sufi, Sufi poet. Um, but he, he was famous in his lifetime. He was the principal... Um, intellectual, the sort of the, the head thinker at, in Baghdad, at the leading institution in Baghdad. So he was roughly the most important, most influential thinker in the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate in his lifetime. And what's important is that he had sort of a long dark night of the soul and he left. He said, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, this is wrong. And he went on a tour. He went, did some monastic living. He went to Mecca. And when he came back, he wrote a whole series of new works. So I want to look at both sides of him. To understand this philosophical tradition, we need to see both sides. Originally, we don't have time to quote everything, but um, originally one of the works that's representative of him, we quote from here, uh, is called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. And what's happened is Al-Ghazali began to suspect that all of these Greek thinkers were beginning to mislead Islamic theologians and philosophers. And so he decided to assault the philosophers themselves. There's a great quote here that will give you the tenor of this. Um, the first quote on the first page there. The sources of their unbeliefs, their unbelief being the, the misled Islamic thinkers, philosophers, is in their hearing high-sounding names such as Socrates, Hippocrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and their likes, and the exaggeration and misguidedness of groups of their followers in describing their minds, the excellence of their principles, the exactitude of their geometrical, logical, natural, and metaphysical sciences. So, this, this, this is what's strange. So this is an Islamic thinker 1,400 years after the death of Aristotle feeling it's necessary to attack him. Right? And he's really here busy going after Avicenna and, and to a lesser degree Al-Farabi, but he's, his, his real target is Avicenna. And, and the incoherence of philosopher, it, philosophers is, is famous because it is an unbelievably efficient and logical demolition of this whole series of philosophical positions and arguments that had been made by the Aristotelians, by Avicenna, and by several other groups, some of the uh, Neoplatonists and so on. But what's strange about it is on one hand, he so demolished them that he sort of undermined uh, the credibility of these people for a while, of, of, of the sort of Greek influence. But on the other hand, he did two things. One, he introduced, he's so clear and concise and did such a good job of presenting the other side's arguments um, that people sort of used his work as an introduction to the philosophers he was attacking. 
right? Is it, but that's how that's how concise and what a clear uh, a mind he had that he would he could give a convincing argument for the side that he was about to demolish. But you would be like, wow, that's a really fair and, and, and interesting introduction. I want to read more of that person. Uh, and then of course he would eviscerate it. But the other thing he did, and this is where the influence of Aristotle in particular is important is he's using the rules of Aristotelian logic much, if not all, of the time. Um, and so the degree to which already Aristotle has impregnated the tradition is immense because he's using, in fact, the methods that he learned reading Aristotle and Aristotle's books on arguments and rhetoric and logic to attack the philosophers who are trying to promote Aristotelianism in various guises. Um, but it is a purely negative work. And people noticed this at the time, that this was a purely negative work. That he, he, he said, oh, that's wrong, and 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 this is wrong. Um, but he never got around to saying, well, what's right? And, and this seems to be what was at the crux of his sort of um, intellectual depression or, or panic or terror. And as he describes it, and I'll, I'll read this section here, um, from the alchemy of ha happiness, uh, it wasn't. It, it's not a lack of faith. I don't, I don't think this would ever occur to him. Um, what he lost faith in was reason. What he realized is he couldn't demonstrate what he wanted to demonstrate. He couldn't make the arguments he wanted to argue with reason. Essentially, logic. He could defeat everybody else's, but he could. It's, it's pretty clear that he could defeat his own as well, and and that this. And he reached the pinnacle of, of his thinking. I mean, he really was the the number one guy, but he couldn't demonstrate what he wanted to, purely with rational tools that he had been given and learned and mastered from the likes of Aristotle. And so here's a quote. Um, uh, this is, again, a bit of a longer quote from The Alchemy of Happiness. The laws of phenomena must be constant or there could be no such thing as science, but it is a great error to mistake the slave for the master. As long as this difference in the perceptive faculty of observers exists, disputes must necessarily go on. And then he has the blind man and the elephant metaphor about how, you know, you put blind men with an elephant, somebody says it's got a skinny snake and somebody it's a big tree trunk, you know, you get all these different ones. For instance, if a man ceases to take any interest in worldly matter, conceives a distaste for common pleasure, and appears sunk in depression, the doctor will say, this is a case of melancholy and requires such and such a prescription. The physicist will say, this is a dryness of the brain caused by hot weather and cannot be relieved till the air becomes moist. The astrologer will attribute to some particular conjunction or opposition of planets. Thus far their wisdom reaches, says the Quran. It does not occur to them that what has really happened is this that the Almighty has a concern for the welfare of that man and has therefore commanded his servants, the plants, the elephants, to produce such a condition in him that he may turn away from the world to his maker. The knowledge of this fact is a lustrous pearl from the ocean of inspirational knowledge to which all other forms of knowledge are as islands in the sea. When he returns from his tour, from his soul-searching, this is what he comes back with, the Sufi tradition. It is not through logic or reason or rationality, or rationality that one reaches Allah. 
because he's greater than the human mind can comprehend. We, cannot, we can't do that. It is through inspiration. And inspiration, he means particularly, by the way, to be the direct contact with your maker, with Allah. It's not a, it, there's no intervention. That, that is the goal of your pursuit. That is where real knowledge comes from. By the way, this is not far off from what Socrates talks about. Because Socrates is continually talking about the fact that he's inspired directly. And he seems to be serious about this. You know, he's not, not, sometimes he is joking around, but many times he, he is clearly quite serious. Um, that that you, you strive for this. And so then you can get a, a further elaboration on this in the Confessions. But notice this is a complete break with what he had been doing up to this time. Logic, reason, Aristotelianism using those arguments to defend the faith, using those arguments to elaborate the faith and create this, this general bed of knowledge. And like I said, he was the man. And then he goes back, has his break, which nobody understood, of course, because he, he left you know, essentially the best job you could get and said, no, no, I'm going out in the desert. I'm going to think, I'm going to ponder, I'm going to tour, I'm going to wander. And this is what he came back with. And so this is a, sort of a summary of that from his... The, the title is translated as Confessions. This isn't that kind of work, by the way. I don't know. I think people just like to translate it that way because it you know, reminds me of our own version of the Confessions. But um, anyway, that's, I don't think it's a good translation. I don't have Arabic, but I'm suspicious of that translation. We may say the same of inspiration, which is one of the branches of intuitional knowledge. Further, the perception of things which are beyond the attainment of reason is only one of the features peculiar to inspiration, which possesses a great number of others. The characteristic which we've mentioned is only, as it were, a drop of water in the ocean, and we have mentioned it because people experience what is analogous to it in dreams and in the sciences of medicine and astronomy. These branches of knowledge belong to the domain of prophetic miracles, and reason cannot attain to them. As to the other characteristics of inspiration, they are only revealed to adepts in Sufism and in a state of ecstatic transport. The little that we know of the nature of inspiration, we owe to the kind of likeness to which we find in sleep. Without that, we would be able, be, should be incapable of comprehending it, and consequently of believing in it, for conviction results from comprehension. The process of initiation into Sufism exhibits the, this likeness to inspiration from the first. There is in it a kind of ecstasy proportioned to the condition of the person initiated, and a degree of certitude and conviction which cannot be attained by reason. The single fact is sufficient to make us believe in inspiration." By the way, this precise line of argument was central to, if you know Ernst Cassir, one of the, one of the great uh, German Kantian uh, philosophers of the 20th century. This, this is, I think he's just quoting Al-Ghazali all over the place. Um, but he, he makes precisely this argument. You can't know things, there's things you can't know with reason, hence you have to rely on inspiration. Kant comes very close to making precise, I mean, you can pretty much say Kant says very similar things. Right? This is, this is a, a significant jump. Um, and one of the things that we get wrong uh, when, we, when we think about things and we say, oh, that's unreasonable or irrational. Uh, it, it may be true, but this is only an insult or a criticism if someone is striving for reason and rationality. Right? I mean, th this is one of the problems that we have um, with something like uh, Sharia law, by the way, a word which is always abused in the media. Sharia law just means an attempt to think out how one should live one's life. 
This is what Sharia law is. And it is, it is the single central corpus of, of the Islamic tradition because you have the Quran and then you take guidance from the Quran and from inspiration. And you work from that. What should I have for breakfast? Quite literally. I mean, he wrote a 40-part 40, uh, um, 40 work. Al-Ghazali wrote a famous 40-part work that just takes you through your day, essentially, in and, and very small details and very large details. How do you live well? How do you live a life that is going to gain you a reward in heaven, is essentially the argument. And you work backwards, not from rationality, but from the inspiration of the prophet and the Quran. Period. Those are your sources. Inspiration of the prophet, inspiration of the Quran. And so if anybody has looked at uh, Sharia jurisprudence, or looked at the Quran for that matter, it's not organized in the way that we would like to organize it. You know, there's, there's not a, a clean index. It's not organized thematically. It's not organized by numerical codes. It tends to be organized by analogical argument and by sort of various other traditions that will throw us off. If, if, but don't take my word for it. Go take a read of it. Um, it, it you're like, wow, how is this organized? But it is absolutely um, um, crucial and central to the Islamic tradition. I'll give you one example. For, I, I should have checked, but I think... Uh, Grand, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, um, who was an Iranian and um, Iraqi cleric, he's right there, and I think he was in Iraq or Iran? I think he's in Iraq. Uh, Grand, yeah, he's an Iraqi cleric. Um, has a website, or had a website up for the longest time, and you could just ask any question, and they had them all up there, and you would say, you know, my wife wants to buy a dog, and I don't want a dog in the house. Wh what what is the right thing to do? And they, they'll answer right away. They give you back. Say, hey, no, this is really, this is what's totally forbidden. This is what's mandated for you to do. Here's what's not totally forbidden, but really you shouldn't do it all. This is what's yeah, questionable. This is what's okay. And this is what's fine, but is not mandated. And so they'll give you this and say, you know, you absolutely you can't. Maybe you could. Eh, you probably shouldn't. Definitely shouldn't. Or man, you do that and you go to hell. Or if you do that, you're earning points in heaven, right? And, they, and they're very, actually, it's very helpful kinds of guidance. And so we think of Sharia as this horrible imposition, and, but it really is this living philosophical discourse about how, should one live, how one should live one's life within the context of an Islamic world. And that corpus has been building and growing for, you know, 1,300 years. It's a huge, vast uh, intellectual undertaking. But, but Al-Ghazali was one of the key figures in making this argument that, look, you cannot demonstrate all the things we want to demonstrate with reason. You must rely on inspiration because this is, this is, this is Muhammad, this is the Quran, this is direct experience with God. Uh, now, we move to Averroes. Um, oh, by the way, there's a couple of disputes about how you pronounce his name. His actual, oh, by the way, I should mention their actual names. I didn't say this. Uh, Al-Ghazali's actual name is Abu Hamid Muhammad Ibn Muhammad Al-Ghazali. Um, and believe it or not, Averroi's uh, original name is Abu al-Wahid Muhammad Ibn Abin Ibn Rust, which somehow became Averroi's. Um, <laughs> but it turns out they translated Ahmad ibn Rust into Hebrew and then Hebrew into Latin and then Latin into English and we got Averroes. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. Uh, the history is funny. Um, now, Averroes, 
was born in El Andalusa, the, the Spanish-occupied, or no, Islamic, anyway, Islamic Spain. Um, and he was the Aristotelian. He was the man. So much so that St. Thomas Aquinas referred to him as the commentator. No one ever called him, they didn't call him his name because he was just the commentator. Um, he is in the, the famous painting by Raphael of the School of Athens. He, uh, there he is. Um, he's there because he is the man who did Aristotle. He, tr he, he translated and improved the translations in Arabic, which were then translated into Latin at the time of, of his life and, and just shortly thereafter. But he also made three commentaries on the Aristotle. One was very short. It was sort of um, executive summary Aristotle for those who are quite busy. Second one was sort of a, a fuller edition of that, a little longer, a little more involved. And the third one was basically facing pages, a page of Aristotle, a page of Averroes. Um, so extensive and spectacular was his commentary that early works of um, Aristotle in Latin tended to have also the complete commentary of Averroes. So when you learned Aristotle, you would actually learn it through his interpretation because it's tricky and he explained it very clearly. I mean, this even at you know, a couple hundred, well, whatever we are, 900 years later, you think, well, wow, that's pretty concise. I mean, he's, he's a good writer. He's a, he's a nice explainer. You can argue with things, but, but wow, that's clear. That's concise. Let's hit the high points. That's, that's good work right there. He was a quality workman. Um, what's significant about him, though, uh, well, many things are significant. He was also a jurist, um, but he was really, really a strong Aristotelian. And he is stacked... Al-Ghazali in person, well not in person, attacked Al-Ghazali's work. And he wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Incoherence. <laughs> which is, of course, a response to the incoherence of the philosophers. Now, The Incoherence of the Incoherence contains, it must be 90%, I think it's all, but it doesn't have every single sentence of The Incoherence of the Philosophers. It has almost every sentence. And so you get a paragraph from Al-Ghazali, and then you get generally a longer paragraph from Averroes going, that is incorrect. But he also takes time to correct Avicenna and Al-Farabi, two other Arabic philosophers who Al-Ghazali is attacking, to say, no, Al-Ghazali is right here because Avicenna and Al-Farabi, or one or either of them, are incorrect. They've got a, uh, a wrong Aristotelian text. They don't understand Aristotle, and the, and the debate rolls on. Uh, but what was key for our purposes in understanding this is in doing that, he's, now he's skating on the heterodox line, right? He's... he's, he's this is tricky, this is dangerous. And what's been happening in Islamic Spain is there's been a fragmentation of the power centers. In fact, this is happening all over the Islamic world at this point. And so he was able to have a one court that supported him, but oh, you know, tricky because there's always you know court intrigue and all that, but also there was this growing tide of resistance to the sort of heterodox thinking or free thinking or philosophical uh, attempts to leave the generally accepted bounds of, of Quranic thought 
because increasingly Islamic world was felt to be under threat and, 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 and correctly so because you know more Spain is being reconquered and you're about to have the Mongols come over and take Baghdad in not too long so so things are being challenged so his argument though which we can read here is sort of a long one but it will give you a sense of, of where he disagrees with Al-Ghazali and then what the stakes are um, this is the last one there we maintain that the business of philosophy is nothing other than to look into creation and to ponder over in order to guide it to the creator. In other words, to look into the meaning of existence. For knowledge of creation leads to the cognizance of the creator through knowledge of the created. The more perfect becomes the knowledge of the creation, the more perfect becomes the knowledge of the creator. The law encourages and exhorts us to observe creation. Thus, it is clear that it is to be taken either as a religious injunction or something approved by the law. Um, by the way, that's a very specific legal term in Sharia. If an injunction means you have to do it, approved means it's really good if you do do it. Thus is it clear that it is to be taken either as religious injunction or something approved by the law. But the law urges us to observe creation by means of reason and demands the knowledge thereof through reason. Now, it being established that the law makes the opposition and consideration of creation by reason obligatory, and consideration is nothing but to make explicit the implicit, this can only be done through reason. Thus we must look into creation with reason. Moreover, it is obvious that the observance of the law proves and encourages must be of the most perfect type, performed with the most perfect kind of reasoning. As the law emphasizes knowledge of God and his creation by inference, it is incumbent on any who wishes to know God and his whole creation by inference to learn the kind of inference, their conditions, and that which distinguishes philosophy from dialectic and exhortation from syllogism. This is impossible unless one possesses knowledge beforehand of the various kinds of reasoning and learns to distinguish between reasoning and what is not reasoning. This cannot be done except one knows at different parts, that is, the different kinds of premises. Averroes and the harmony of religion and philosophy. This is all but to say the only way to know God is through Aristotle. That is a summary of what he just said. Because Aristotle laid down the rules of reasoning. This is what he did. This is the influence he had. What is a syllogism? How do you know the principles? How do you divide an argument? How do you use rhetoric? When do you have false rhetoric? When have you got correct evidence? When can you make a true inference? I mean, the, the logic, I mean, Aristotle went on at incredible length, I assure you. To feel free to read through it. Uh, there's a lot of it, and it's incredibly powerful. It was a huge leap forward in sort of systematization of the knowledge of how to make correct and incorrect arguments. It's not perfect, um, and it's been expanded and since then, but this is what Averroes is saying right here. He's saying, you want to know God? There's only one way. It's in a religious injunction to know God through reason, and you need to know reason. You need to know inference and syllogism, which is to say you have to know Aristotle, and you have to get it correct. Now, this is, a, obviously, this is a direct contradiction to what Al-Ghazali has said. This, this, is, this is laying down the foundation of the arguments. And one way to understand, excuse me, uh, the difference that's about to take place in, in history, philosophical history um, and, and cultural history, is, is what happens with these two arguments. Averroes' argument carries essentially no weight in the Islamic world. It's about to be overrun 
and the kind of uh, sort of philosophical speculation and free thinking and importation of foreign thought it just doesn't just doesn't hold up very well. And Al Ghazali um, and his group win the day. They, they really they are they are more or less victorious. But Averroes' arguments are translated into Latin, and in Latin they become one of the signal influences on the Renaissance. This is, this is where it comes from. In fact, it's not just that the Islamic church didn't like um, this argument, and we'll talk about why that would be, but uh, I think about four or five years before um, the theses are, are nailed to the wall, in, in the Pope, is facing problems. I mean, these problems have been growing. And so they have a big papal conclave. And out of the papal conclave, the, the big thing they produce is an indictment against Averroes' philosophy. 300 years later, what's the big threat to Catholicism? Averroes' philosophy. So that this was potentially a threat was recognized at the time. He himself sort of had to lay low for a while, and then when his, when his caliph, well, not caliph, when his supporter um, uh, moved, he moved with him because, you know, he was in trouble. He, he was under threat. But it does not win the day in the Islamic world. In fact, it definitely loses the day. But in the Western world, because of the Reformation and the Renaissance, it carries the day. Why is Aristotelianism so significant and such an underpinning in, in Renaissance thinking, particularly in the higher subjects. In large part, not entirely, but in large part because of Averroes. His translations, his commentary, are what influenced people like St. Thomas Aquinas. In fact, Aquinas is so influenced by him, he actually in his own work says, oh look, this is mine. I created this. This is, this is, this is real Aquinas right here. I didn't steal this from Averroes. You know, this is mine. Because a lot of it is just the Averroes, just sort of modestly changed. And it's important to remember what St. Thomas Aquinas was trying to do. He was trying to meld Aristotelianism with Catholicism. Uh, this turns out not to work so well in the long run. Worked for a while, long run, not a good project. Same thing. It, it would be wrong to think of Averroes as anything but a devout and practicing Muslim. But he was trying to do the same thing that St. Thomas Aquinas was trying to do, which was to meld Aristotelianism with Islam. Now, this project doesn't really get off the ground because it, it sort of fails before it starts. But in attempting to do that, he influenced the Western mind and he introduced a couple of ideas. And that's why that wanted to finish on that quote, to give you the distinct flavor difference. And I think a lot of this is tone and flavor. Uh, that you get between someone like an Al-Ghazali and someone like an Averroes, and then what grows from that. One key point, um, and this is not an argument that Averroes would make, but it's implicit in his argument, is let's say uh, you, you have this glass here, or well, not a glass, have this little bit of water here. Why does it not float off into space? We would say gravity. Right? Well, what causes gravity? We would give you a scientific explanation. Where do those laws come from? Now, Averroes would say, uh, Allah created the universe, and he created the laws of the universe. And the laws of the universe 
suck that to the table, and then it cannot float off. Al-Ghazali says, no, this cannot be. This is a simplification, but he says, this cannot be. Because that would mean God is limited to the laws that he's made. And God cannot be limited by anything. The only reason this sticks to the table is that every instance, Allah intervenes because Allah wants it on the table. And if at any moment he did not wish it to be on the table, it would float up or disappear or turn into a cat. Right? There is no, there is no limit. You cannot place a limit on what God can do. And any attempt to do so is blasphemy, essentially. It's a blasphemous charge. What this means is the world is not fundamentally reasonable. That's why Al-Ghazali comes around to the point that you cannot approach God and the world through reason because it's not a reasonable world. God can make reasonable laws, but then he can violate them willy-nilly. For Averroes, this is not the case. God makes reasonable laws so that we can study the laws to understand him. It's, basically, it's sort of a gift. Ah, but you can see this is the seeds of deism. right? It, it doesn't take a, lot, a, a huge stretch of the imagination to go, well, if God created the laws, then we just study the laws and we don't have to worry about God so much, right? This is, this is sort of French Enlightenment and the day, you know, it's, it's that sort of slope. And Al-Ghazali was not wrong about that. I mean, this Al-Ghazali saw this and said, this is, that path leads to, you know, uh, a, a bad place, a place we do not want to go. And again, Averroes was not a materialist and he was not a free-thinking, you know, libertine or, or atheist in any way. He was a good, earnest, devout Muslim. But it's clear in his philosophy that he thought reason should win the day. Reason was the path to understanding. And more or less, this is the dividing line we live in uh, culturally as civilizations. I mean, this is an argument that hasn't finished. We're not done with this argument, by the way. But how do you discover things? How do you know? How do you gain knowledge? How do you understand the world? Right? Our argument is, well, you through reason and evidence. Well, once you say that, faith ah, becomes a bit tricky. Right? If, if you want reason and evidence, sort of the opposite of faith, um, and now we're in trouble. If you do not require that and you say no, it's rationality has no place. You can use logic to argue once you have your principles, but first principles do not come from rationalism. You can't reason them out. You can experience them or you can accept them, but you can't reason them. Well, it's an, basically it's an entirely different philosophical world. Um, and, and, and if again, if we fast forward today, one of the difficulties we often have communicating across the two civilizations is, is right along that flaw. I don't know if anybody heard that um, one of the religious authorities in Saudi Arabia thought that chess might be a bad idea. And this makes us laugh. We think, well, that's hilarious. How could chess be a bad idea? Well, one, notice that regulating the behavior of its citizens is what governments do. The fact that they would choose chess is no different from us saying, you know, you can't drink alcohol till you're 21. But we say, oh, alcohol, no, that's a serious thing, and chess is not. Well, 
That's a cultural, you know, it's clearly just a cultural identification. Their argument is, look, you're not supposed to be wasting your time on, on silly pursuits. If you have free time, it should be dedicated to the contemplation or works of your God, and chess is certainly not that. Which is not an unreasonable argument within that context. But for us, that, that ju just seems silly, because what, what logical, reasonable prince, what harm does it do for people to play chess? Well, you, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a difficult, it's difficult for us to feel it, because the, the, the cleric is making his argument, one, from Quranic tradition, and two, from inspiration. I contemplated, I reflected about it, I prayed about it, and this is what I felt. And so here I go. And here's some quotes from the Quran, by the way, always quotes from the Quran, uh, to support this. And, and that is the sort of world, whereas what we would have to do is we would have to have some studies. We'd have to have studies that show that kids who play chess are four times more likely to drop out of school and commit crimes and steal your cars. And, and if that were true, then we would have a movement to ban chess or to limit its exposure or to make sure you only play chess 60 minutes a day or whatever it was, but we would want evidence. And what we counted as evidence would not be anything like what the Islamic world counts as evidence. And so this is one of the things that we struggle with. We say, oh, what's your argument? This, well, what's your evidence? And what they often, within this tradition, provide as evidence, we simply, you know, we, we just don't buy it. We don't believe it. Well, one, you, you, they use the Quran every time, and we just, we don't accept that as evidence. We don't allow ourselves, generally speaking, uh, to use the Bible as evidence for everything. Um, we're like, well, we would like something with more studies and scientific. It's still hugely influential. Um, but, but, but we've been working away with, from that premise for several hundred years. And so that is just this huge dividing line. And that dividing line goes back not 100 years, but goes back 1,000 years, basically. Because, again, what happens immediately after the life of Averroes, excuse me, <coughs> is... Mughal, uh, the, the Mongols, uh, I forget which Khan it is, Mulaga Khan, I think, one of the Khans, one of the many friendly Khans, uh, conquers Baghdad, and that sort of upsets everything. And the, and the center of the Muslim world shifts from the Abbasid Caliphate to um, uh, Egypt. Um, and then a whole new series of power struggles ensue. Ottoman Turkish Empire is rolling along here pretty soon. But, you know, it, it is a definitely an end of that tradition. And so we have, again, the influence here is, is, is immense in both worlds. It's pretty clear that without the arrival of Aristotle from the Arabic tradition, and many other works, by the way, it wasn't just Aristotle, I'm just focusing on Aristotle because he's the clearest centerpiece. They took the, the math, you know, Euclid, Pythagoras, science, uh, uh, the medicine, Galen, um, just all the engineering works from the Romans, I mean, just much of it you wouldn't have a renaissance. I mean, everybody says, oh, the renaissance, oh, it's the rediscovery of the classic world, sort of a version of the classic world. Where did they rediscover it? They rediscovered it in, in, in the Arabs, right? It was in Arabic, um, and it was because of, of the conquest of Spain. So that's where they discovered it. They didn't find it in Greece, because they weren't in Greece. They found it right there, conveniently located in the middle of Europe. Uh, you know, that, that's, the, that's the concept. 
And so it would not have gotten this kickstart. Those texts wouldn't have been there to rediscover without this incredible translation movement. And within the Arab world, the other thing that happens from this is you also get, you know, algebra, by the way, as it comes from an Arabic word, right? It's the, the, the advancement in optics. The Arabs were very good in optics. I'm never quite clear why, but boy, they were good with optics. Um, they worked out, I uh, forget, um, his name just flew out of my mind, the Arabic scholar that worked out how the eye works for the first time. Because there's all this debate about how does the, the human eye work. It's not clear. He, he worked it out. Um, so optics, medicine, mathematics, this take this huge leap forward, linguistics, um, translation, obviously. And then it, it kind of fragments. That golden age, like all golden age, just sort of settles down. It, it, it's attacked from the outside. They lose the Iberian Peninsula. The Mongols come in. It's divided from within. But the fragments of that we still live with, and the concepts and the ideas and the cultural heritage, both in, in our world, um, the Western world, through the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, through concepts like deism, and the fact that Aristotle is around is one of the crucial ideas that um, is, is influential to us. And in the Islamic world is because of the arguments against it. It was still influential. It still hugely influenced the way they reasoned, by the way. This, Aristotle basically wrote the book on reasoning, and, and we all just use it as one way to think about it. But they, but they did come up with another answer. They did come up with an original response. Al-Ghazali, not by himself. I'm just using him as, an, as a representative. Um, and they also tend to argue, as we're not familiar with, by analogy. Very popular. Direct quote from the Quran and by analogy, comparative analogy. It's a very interesting form of making an argument and making a point. But those differences are deep-seated, but curiously they come from a shared heritage. It's the Greeks, the Greeks, the Greeks again. The acceptance of and the rejection of it. Um, finally, let me, let me finish up by pointing out that what the... Al-Ghazali's point gets very much closer to is the, the Neoplatonist position, which is hilarious, is that, that they end up taking on the, the sort of Neoplatonic ideal of this encounter with the metaphysical sort of emanations. It's, it's, it's very confusing when you read it, but it, but it is this idea of, of sort of the spirit rising up. Maybe the clearest example you can see is in, in uh, the Phaedrus by Socrates, as again, he often makes things clearer than other places where he says, there is this world of the ideal real. And then below that is the world of the gods. And then there's the world that humans inhabit. And what happens is the gods are the gods because they're able to access the ideal world more or less all the time. So that's where they get truth and knowledge and wisdom and everything from, because they live up there and they can see it and touch it and experience it. For humans, what happens is we have our souls, which are immortal, and they go up and they just touch it. They just peek a little bit in there and then, oh, they get reincarnated, essentially, not the word they would use. Uh, they get reincarnated and we have a memory of that encounter with perfection, which makes us a little bit like the gods. And that the way you achieve true knowledge Reason helps, introspection helps, all that helps, but really it is through re-experiencing your soul's encounter with the absolute truth that's up there someplace. Now you can substitute Allah for the ethereal realm, get rid of the gods in the middle, and you're pretty much on your way. 
This is, this is, this is they, they took a lot of stuff from Plotinus, for instance, uh, to make this argument. And, and finally, I'm going to mention that this line of argument is not dead. We still live in, in the West in, I think, two, at least two places you can see. Uh, Ernst Cassir, still an influential philosopher, this was central to his idea. He said, he said straightforward in his essay on the human, on, on human, I think, on being human. Uh, he says straightforward, look, you can't reason your way to absolute truth, you can only gain it through inspiration, which is, like I said, more or less quoting Al-Ghazali. I don't know if he meant to quote Al-Ghazali, but he was, I think he did mean to quote Al-Ghazali. Um, and anytime we talk about the arts, Anytime we talk about music, anytime we talk about these things that we find uplifting and spiritual, we invoke this notion of there's this super rational or there's this exterior force, something beyond and greater and mightier and somehow better than we are that we encounter occasionally and it moves us powerfully and, and we call it this you know, the, the, the force, the spirit, the, the thing outside, the encounter with the higher world, the ethereal plane, the immortal, the eternal. I f felt moved by the, the real, you know, the universe spoke to me. All this language uh, is, pre is precisely the language of Al-Ghazali. This is the argument that he makes. And what we've done culturally is we've divided that out very carefully. And we've said that kind of language is okay to use for some things, but not okay to use for other things. So we haven't really taken the, the, the sort of Averi's line as far as we could. Um, and so while there is this huge cultural distinction, keep this in mind that if you read Al-Ghazali, take the religion out of it and put art or music or hiking or encountering nature, it'll ring much more true to you. It's not as alien as you would think. We aren't as far away as we like to pretend. Um, a lot of it, we're, we're, we're still very close. That cultural heritage, we were together. This line of reasoning, argumentation, and influence was, was very close for five or 600 years. Um, and those sorts of you know, emanations and ties, they don't just vanish. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Al-Ghazali and Averroes. Yeah. Ha <laughs>